Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. I'm you from the future. Joining me is you from the past. Uh, I've come forward to warn you about things that have already happened. Our book this month is Night Watch, the story that asks, what if Les Miserables was also the Terminator? It's very appropriate. <laughs> I imagine you assumed that this was going to be a watch book. Yeah, I had that inkling, at least. <laughs> I had, like, kind of vaguely heard about Nightwatch on social medias across my being on the internet. Um, but I never, like, really heard anything about, like, what was actually happening in the book. But this book, like, starts out on, like, such a wild ride. I was, like, immediately hooked. We've got a lot to cover, so let's dive right into it. Published November 2002 and coming in at 92,000 words, Nightwatch is the 29th Discworld novel and 6th in the Watch series. Its working title was The Nature of the Beast, but it was changed when Francis Fifield published a book with the same title in late 2001. The cover art by Paul Kidby is a parody of a Rembrandt painting known by the same name. Notably, Kidby incorporated the late Josh Kirby into the art, in the same position where Rembrandt painted himself in the original. The painting also includes three winners of a charity auction to be written into the story, and the original painting was later purchased by one of the same auction winners. The wearing of lilacs calls back to wearing poppies in remembrance of dead soldiers. The mention of policemen being called Sammies is a reference to the English slang term Bobbies, which comes from the Prime Minister Robert Peel and his organization of Metropolitan Police Force in the mid-19th century. There are several quotes from famous political figures, including Nathan Hale and Chairman Mao, while the line about how dark sarcasm ought to be taught in schools is referencing Pink Floyd's The Wall. And the infamous ginger beer trick is supposedly a real torture technique, which involves shaking up a bottle of soda and opening it so that it squirts up the victim's nose. Ooh, that sounds like a rough time. Yeah. <laughs> Nightwatch has over 70 editions in more than a dozen languages. The audiobook, read by Stephen Briggs, lasts 10 hours and 40 minutes, with a four-hour version read by Tony Robinson. Briggs also published a stage adaptation for the story, which was performed by Ook Productions in June 2021 and released as a live-to-tape stream. In 2008, BBC Radio 4 aired a five-part audio adaptation of the story, starring Philip Jackson as Sam Vimes. Nightwatch was nominated for the 2003 Locus Award, won the Prometheus Award that same year, and placed 73rd in, and placed 73rd in the 2004 Big Read Survey. And actually, this will be the last time that we mention the Big Read Survey. We have covered all 15 Discworld books that were on there. Wow. Actually, uh, 14 plus Good Omens, but we've covered that too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like quite a feat to get so... I mean, Pratchett was a very, very prolific author. Like, that is very well known, but... To get so many books onto this national survey, like, that's a big deal. Yeah, of the top 200 books, he's got 15 like, mm -hmm. that are on there. And, like, in the top 100, he has the same number of entries as Charles Dickens. Yeah, like, that's wild. Like, everybody knows who Charles Dickens is. Everybody's read a Dickens story. But I feel like so many people have not actually read any Pratchett, you know? Yeah. 
I think that perspective is influenced by the fact that we're Americans, and I think he's Mm -hmm. a bit more popular over in England where the survey was conducted. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. But, like, such a shame, you know? I think more people need to get on this. Yeah. (laughs) Also, just... On the subject of the awards, uh, the Prometheus Award is apparently for, like, libertarian or, like, objectivist books. And I don't know that I agree, but also, upon reflection, Terry Pratchett's not particularly critical of capitalism. So, I don't know, maybe they're right. Yeah, that one feels like we're missing a few pieces of information where that would make a bit more sense. Because that seems a little buck wild to me. Our story begins with Samuel Vimes, commander of the Watch for Ankh-Morpork, Duke of the City-State, and heir by marriage to the vast fortunes of the Ramkin family. Not for the first time, his morning shave is punctuated by the sound of an assassin falling into one of the booby traps he has set up around the mansion. He retrieves the young woman, who mentions that this was purely a training exercise, The Guild of Assassins is no longer accepting contracts on Sam's life, which he has mixed feelings about. Yes, it's good that there are fewer people trying to kill him, but he never actually wanted all of this wealth and authority, and part of him misses the days when he was below the notice of people like the Guild. I think this intro works really, really well because it feels like it could have been plucked out of any of the other Watch books, and so it serves as a really nice introduction to get us brought back up to the speed. Adding to Vines' list of worries, his wife, Lady Sybil, is due to deliver their child very soon. There's a serial killer on the loose, and perhaps the biggest to him personally, it's May 25th. Which, coincidentally, is the anniversary of both the resignation of Richard Cromwell and the theatrical release of Star Wars. (laughs) It's a busy day. Yeah, Star Wars was so amazing that Richard Cromwell retired. Mm Mm-hmm. Anything I don't personally remember all happened at the same time. <laughs> so, Also kind of weird, because I don't know that we've gotten reference to a lot of months in Discworld. If we did, I seem to remember them having different names. So just having a May in there is mm-hmm. a little strange. Yeah, that's for sure. I bet you if there's a May, there's probably also a Can and Will. <laughs> but <I'm> t- <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week. <laughs> Yeah, I think most of the times where we get references to time, and I think the bulk of that time is actually references to years, it's very much not what how we measure time, you know? Yeah. So this was definitely a, a little like, oh, okay. But it's useful because it gives fans a day to think about Discworld. Yeah. <laughs> the other 364 days of the year, we're just making excuses for it. Yeah, but we need an outlet. Vimes makes his way to the Watch House, and from there to the Cemetery of Small Gods, where he and several others, mostly more Watchmen, but also the street vendor Cut Me Own Throat Dibbler, most of them are occupied contemplating a small set of graves, except for Corporal Reginald Chu, who is burying himself as a gesture of solidarity. Because he's a zombie, you see. <laughs> Prominent among the graves is one belonging to John Keel, who was Vimes' mentor. The way that Vimes talks about him, it would have been nice if Keel had been referenced in previous watchbooks, but it does work well enough within the story. Yeah, that's for sure. This book definitely feels like it gets into a lot of like Vimes' personal backstory and motivations, which 
you know, that can be a really hard thing to give in any kind of like literature without it feeling super exposition heavy and only kind of related to actually what's happening. So I'm totally fine with it just being like, oh, and by the way, in this book. Although there's also been like, the series has not really been shy about Vimes' histories, thinking about it, because most of the previous books, in fact, I think this is the first time it has gone an entire watchbook without mentioning it, and Vimes' ancestor killed the last king of Ankh-Morpork, mm -hmm. the reason why they don't have a monarchy anymore. Very soon into the book, but a little after this point that we're talking about now, I definitely thought that was going to be way more relevant to the story than it actually turned out being. <laughs> Later on, Vimes has a meeting with Lord Vetinari, ruler of the city, but it is interrupted with news about Carcer, the aforementioned serial killer. Since Carcer has already killed multiple members of the Watch, Vimes decides to take him down himself. Their chase leads them across rooftops to the School of Magic Unseen University, and to the glass dome above the university library. As Vimes and Carcer grapple, a sudden storm forms above them. Both men are struck by a bolt of lightning, warped by the intense magical energy of the university. Seriously, like, this scene reads like the climax in any other book. Like, <laughs> it's just so, so good, and I was immediately, like, hooked in there. Yeah. Very good visuals there. Oh, yeah. Also, what do you think of Carcer? I mean, I think he works really, really well as a villain. I kind of struggle with knowing what to think about him because I think he seems kind of simple, but he's very, like, amorphous in that way. And I don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense. Mm -hmm. But it feels like, you know, his motivations are clear. He kind of just wants to hurt people and things. Um, but he is very crafty about how he is able to do that. I'm hesitant to bring up this comparison because like, it's become a meme to even mention the character's name, but he really is just the Joker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely like there, I think. <laughs> yeah. Vimes wakes up in the clinic of one Dr. Lawn, where he is greeted by a seamstress. Uh, which you'll remember is the Discworld euphemism for a prostitute. <laughs> Bizarrely, neither of them seem to recognize him, but he figures that he can get this all straightened out when he gets back to the Remkin estate. However, when he gets there, he finds an unfamiliar butler, and a girl he recognizes as Sybil, but many years younger. Following that, he also recognizes the seamstress as a young Rosemary Palm, who he knows in his present as the head of her profession's guild. Baffled, he flees, running back to the university for assistance, only to be arrested by the Night Watch. I do like Rosie Palm in this. She's a very, like, spunky kind of character. I very much, like, appreciate her attitude. Hmm. Definitely crafty, like, mm -hmm. not willing to take any guff from anybody. Mm -hmm. But also, there's a clear sense that she cares very much about the other seamstresses. Yeah, there's a line in this one um, where I think it's when she and Vimes meet where he recognizes her as a seamstress, but also that there's something about her that is much more clever and much more capable of, you know, gaining power and authority than probably mm -hmm. a lot of people would assume at first. Definitely. Which feels like a very nice, like, 
I guess, foreshadowing. Yeah. Or post-shadowing. Yeah. (laughs) Time gets a little weird in this book, so. Yeah. Uh, There's also a very good gag where one of the people that she hangs out with a lot of the time is an actual seamstress or a needlewoman (laughs) to give a distinction. Yeah. (laughs) I enjoyed how Rosie thinks to herself that she's not entirely sure how innocent the needlewoman is or if she's being wound up. Yeah. (laughs) Like a spool of thread. <gasps> the officers take Vimes back to their watch house on Treacle Mine Road, which you might recall from like Guards Guards was where mm-hmm. the watch series started. Yeah, the name was familiar at first, but I didn't really, like it took me a minute to remember exactly what it was. At the watch house, the captain begins to question Vimes. He gives his name as John Keel, but it turns out that the real Keel was killed Keeled. was killed the previous day. Uh, stabbed during a mugging just after he'd arrived in the city. But here, they are interrupted. <laughs> Lucy, you got some splaining to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's the history monks back from Thief of Time and Small Gods. I was very surprised to actually see them pop up. And then the second Lucy pops up, I was like, oh, obviously. Like, why would they not be involved in this one? It's literally about time again. Yeah. In fact, actually, you recall the lightning bolt. It's a little bit uh, left ambiguous in Nightwatch itself, but that's pretty clearly the lightning bolt from the climax of Thief of Time. Oh, uh uh-huh. Those events are happening, like, simultaneously. Weird. This, I feel like I've gotten the most, like, concrete sense of chronological time in the Discworld universe with Mm -hmm. this book, because obviously, like, in the last Watch book, um, Sybil is telling Vimes that she's pregnant. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, this is approximately like, I don't know, like six-ish months after that? Yeah, maybe like six, I'd say maybe five months, because like, mm-hmm. if they were able to tell that she was pregnant, she probably was a bit along. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think actually also we get some broad strokes uh, understanding of the general timeline, at least for Sam Vimes and the city of Ankh-Morpork, because mm-hmm. he's been tra- he's been transported back 30 years, which he figures out pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And from various things that he says and thinks, it's probably about, I don't have a good reasoning for this, but I'd say probably like 15 to 20 years until Lord Vetinari uh, is made patrician. Yeah, I think that's yeah. fairish because I think it's implied in here that he's very young still. Yeah, and 25 years from like the past until uh, the broadly the start of the City Watch book series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think he mentioned that it was like five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. This book is very nice if you were trying to like map out Discworld chrono- uh, chronologically. This gives yeah. you a lot of information to help piece things together. Although the entire thing about the history monks is that you really can't because mm-hmm. history exploded. Yeah, so it's a little, you know, it's a little shifty. Vimes did figure out that he's been sent back to the past. He also learns from the history monks that Carcer was brought back with him and he killed the authentic John Keel. Now it seems that Vimes has to take Keel's place in history. And part of that, he realizes, will be stepping up as a father figure to one of the officers who arrested him the previous night. 
a naive little twerp named Sam Vimes. Uh oh. <laughs> I my own paw. <laughs> yeah, it gets a little paradoxical here. <laughs> yeah. So Lucy brings Commander Vimes back to the watch house, uh, placing him right back at the moment when he left. And by adopting a brusque, authoritative tone that appeals to the ex-military captain, Vimes bluffs his way into being accepted as Keel and assigned the rank of Sergeant-at-Arms. Vimes also takes up lodgings with Dr. Lawn, since the doctor learned medicine in Clatch and has strange new ideas, like that the patient should get better. Shocking. <laughs> yeah. What did you think of Dr. Lawn? He doesn't pop up in the book a lot, but I really like his kind of tone, I guess. Um, have you watched the Shadow and Bone series on Netflix? Not yet. It, one of my roommates has recommended it. It's. I think it's worth a watch. I've never read the books, but it's 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 a fun watch. Um, hmm. But there's a character in that, and he's called the Conductor, I think. Um, and I get very much the same vibe about Lon that I get from that character, um, where it's like this kind of like no nonsense like very efficient um very capable person um but you know they're they've got a little bit more than meets the eye necessarily yeah although i think both characters might draw a little bit from dr mccoy from star trek with the like mm -hmm. gruff practical attitude yeah that i mean i think that makes sense as a, a comparison especially considering that you know that was pretty big in the uh, 90s-ish, early 2000s, whenever this book came out. Um, I've never seen Star Trek, though, so... Huh. It's fine. Like, mm -hmm. definitely very influential. Like, yeah. Parts of it have not aged well, but other parts are, like, are better than people give it credit for. I like things that are uh, complicated like that. So I might have to give it, at least some of it, a bit of a try eventually. Look out for Liz's new podcast, the Star Trek Recap. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not putting that on you. <laughs> That's a lot of a lot a lot of work. I know how much Star Trek there is. Yeah. Very quickly, Keel takes charge of the Watch House and starts establishing some new rules, particularly concerning the Cable Street Particulars, the secret police founded by Lord Winder, the exceptionally paranoid current ruler of the city. Winder is convinced that there is a conspiracy to overthrow him, and we soon learn that his draconian attempts to find it have created one. Yeah, I think one of the things that this book does really well is I think it addresses the complexities of, you know, political conflict and revolution, mm -hmm. um, and that it's not quite that simple, and that sometimes... You know, there's no revolution to start with, but trying to crank down on the possibility of one is what generates it, you know? Yeah, like, well, can generate it, definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think it just handles that really well, because I feel like a lot of media kind of s simplifies it for dramatic sake, when in reality, like, revolutions and change is messy and complicated and frustrating and i think this kind of really captures that tone very well that night vimes takes young sam with him on patrol and begins teaching his younger self some of the important lessons about being a decent copper 
In particular, he demonstrates such useful tools as malicious compliance by bringing a load of curfew breakers to the Cable Street office as per the patrician's orders, but refuses to acquiesce to the authority of the particulars, and ends up letting the curfew breakers, including Rosie Palm, go free. This is also where we meet Captain Find the Swing, head of the particulars, or the unmentionables, as they're sometimes called. Uh, his name is a reference to the common pseudonym that 19th century Brits would use to sign threatening messages to landlords and magistrates, which is a weird choice to name the guy in charge of the government inquisition. Yeah. Uh, he's also a firm believer in craniometrics, the pseudoscience of determining someone's personality by measuring their facial features. Uh, he's a clear example of what happens to a justice system that focuses exclusively on punishing those that the authority deems wicked, and how people who want to abuse power will invent any form of justification. Yeah, I think he serves very well as a villain because he's not, like, cartoonishly threatening or whatever when we first meet him, but he gives a lot of signs that he's a bad dude with a shallow perception of morals. Yeah, I think he's a little cartoonish. <laughs> I do find the way he talks, like, very, very hard to deal with. Mm-hmm. Later, Vimes encounters two more faces familiar to the readers. First is a young dibbler, just starting out in the pork pie business and supplementing his income by being a message boy for the conspiracy. The other is a street urchin by the name of Nubby Nobs, who has been hired by a number of people to follow Vimes and report on his doings. The main client that Nobby reveals to Vimes is a foreign lady named Madame Mezerol. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Didn't check. Yeah, that's a, a bit of a landmine of a name, I think. Um, but I think, I kind of wish she was in the story more because she's obviously got, you know, her fingers on the pot and a lot of what's going yeah. on. Um, but we only kind of get some glimpses of her. Um, yeah. Although I think we do get at least as much of her as we've gotten of some other, like, fairly important characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I think this book focuses a lot on um, Vimes' internal conflicts as everything's going on, yeah. um, which feels like then the story gets less pulled away into tangents with other characters as much as other Discworld books do. Mm-hmm. Which I'm not complaining about. I think it serves its purpose very, very well in this book. But I just think she's a very interesting character that, especially at the end of the book, I kind of wish we got a little bit more uh, more time with her. Definitely. Cut to the Assassin's Guild, and we meet the madam herself. More relevantly, we meet her nephew, one of the students and main bullying target for Downey, the future guild president. Downey mocks the boy, whom he calls Dog Botherer, for reading a picture book about camouflage. Later on, Madame Meserol mentions the nickname to her nephew, and he replies that it's the best you could hope for when your surname is Veterinari. I feel like this gives so much information about how <laughs> Veterinari works. Yeah. You know? It does indicate that he has always been like that. Yeah. <laughs> but also, like, it does a really good job of showing, like, his cunning and flexibility and uh, insane tolerance, you know? Unflappability as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. 
and especially like compared to the the other uh assassin students like the juxtaposition between the two is like yeah this is what sets him apart this is why he gets where he gets the implication here also seems to be that the guild of assassins has been like more or less ratified long before a lot of the other crime guilds that we see in, in earlier books, which kind of makes sense if Lord if the patricians have in the past like decided to employ them, but also Lord Winder is so paranoid about them, you'd kind of wonder how they survived. Yeah, I think there's a lot of like interesting history there. You know, it's like what kind of world do you, do you have to have in order to make assassins like a legalized profession mm-hmm. um and then what kind of world needs to exist in order to justify that continuance and i think it at least compared to the other um criminal guilds or whatever that we see in later like temporarily in the series um is that assassins would usually be probably employed by people who are very wealthy or very powerful who would be able to justify to themselves and to other wealthy and powerful people the need for people who can are who people who are capable of doing that kind of work. Yeah, definitely. Oh yeah. Also, the thing about Vetinari being called a dog botherer is because his name is a pun on a veterinarian because he's a parody of Machiavelli and that name like means doctor more or less. Oh. <laughs> that's not been one I've gotten, but that makes a lot of sense now. I didn't get Dog Bother as a nickname, but that that tracks now. <laughs> Back with Vimes, there's an extended bit where some of the other members of the Night Watch, particularly one Lance Constable Ned Coates, believe that Keel is a spy for the Unmentionables, and they try to frame him for stealing the Captain's silver inkwell. Rather than turn the trick back on the other policemen, Vimes makes the aging captain believe that he simply misplaced it. I think this this is such a good moment for showing Vimes' character. You know, he has the capacity to do malicious things, but he chooses to go a more neutral route. You know, especially when it'll serve him better. Yeah, it's also... More implied at the moment, but later we find out mm-hmm. that Ned Coates is one of the revolutionaries, and Vimes recognizes that he's on the side of more or less justice. That night, Vimes goes on patrol with young Sam again, and they run into Carcer, who has joined the Unmentionables. Somebody who only wants to do violence to other people becoming a police officer? I'm shocked. I know. <laughs> yeah, this is... uh. This serves very well to keep Carcer very involved with the main plot of the story because it, I mean, there's already conflict between him and Vimes, but to put them on very oppositional sides, like structurally, you know, it, it, it does well to increase the threat. Yeah, because it runs throughout the book that Vimes struggles with curtailing the impulse to do violence to other people. And mm-hmm. Carcer kind of uh, is a mirror to Vimes in that he revels in that impulse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a really interesting thing that happens throughout the book where, you know, we mentioned it kind of briefly earlier, where uh, the beast inside of Vimes um, is that hunger for harm and malice. Um, 
And it's interesting because it's always referred to as this thing that's a part of vibes. But there's a couple times where Carcer is referred to um, as like an animal. Like he when he's later on the book talking to some general, they refer to him as the creature. So mm-hmm. while the beast is just a part of vibes is, that is all Carcer is. But I think he also has, like, to reference a previous book, there was also the werewolves in... The, the fifth elephant who indulge in the violence that they attributed to wolves, but with the uh, competence of humans. And I think that definitely is manifest in Carcer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a brief scene where Vimes gets kidnapped and brought to meet Madame Meserol, who is the ultimate mastermind behind the movement to overthrow Lord Winder. And she offers to ensure that Kiel is put in charge of the entire city watch. Vimes is tempted, but ultimately he knows that he won't be able to affect real change at this time in history. And it's more important that he get back to his own time, to his wife and child. There's a bit also where Vimes sort of beats himself up a little bit before being tempted and thinking about it and not remembering Sybil until a little bit later. I think he can probably cut himself a little bit of slack because the circumstances around him are pretty intense. Yeah, and, you know, especially as we get later in the book, it'll become very apparent that this is, like, a very traumatic part of his life, um, and he's very suddenly thrust back into it and having to relive it. Um, And I think, especially considering that, you know, he's obviously struggle throughout all of the books to find a balance between work and his personal life and it's not necessarily something that he's probably always succeeded with Mm -hmm. and to show that as a character flaw here where it's like he doesn't think of them first and he is ashamed of them and he and he's ashamed of himself for that um i think it does a lot to make him seem like not this all-powerful perfect hero character definitely so Soon after that, the Night Watch gets word about riots breaking out around the city. And when a mob comes to Treacle Street, Vimes manages to de-escalate the situation by making the officers disarm and just treating the mob like human beings rather than adhere to the violent orders of the government. What a novel concept. <laughs> yeah, this is a very like emotionally intelligent uh, moment for him. And... You know, there's a saying that if you prepare for war, all you'll get is war. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, yeah, of course, if you yeah. suit up and march out there with swords and armor and stuff, of course, people are going to treat you like a threat because you're acting like one. Yeah. If you want to know who wants a riot, look at the people who dressed for one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So... Uh, Then we get a scene where Vimes goes back to the history monks, fed up with being in the past and desperate to go home, but they reiterate that they need him here to fill the role that John Keel played in the original timeline, otherwise the rest of history might be undone. However, they are able to to procure for Vimes something that he lost when he arrived, his silver cigar case, engraved with a message of love from Sybil. Throughout this book, there's a lot of references to Vimes as a person who does the job that's in front of him and it's Mm -hmm. how he's managed to survive being a cop for this long um and so he kind of is able to convince himself to do all of this in the first place after meeting the history monks because it's the job he needs to do and at this point he's very obviously kind of starting to lose his way a little bit and is struggling with figuring out 
how he's supposed to keep on going and even if the thing he's imagined as his life for the past few years is even real at all yeah Um, and so this is like a a real anchor for him emotionally i I dig it yeah mm -hmm. i think this book does a really good job with like kind of flirting with those darker more complex emotions that we don't necessarily get a whole lot in Discworld books because there's so much uh, so many of the books focus more on the comedy and I don't know if I would call this book a comedy I mean it definitely has jokes in it like there's parts yeah. that made me laugh out loud especially uh one reference we get to the Ankh Pork Times and how mm-hmm. Vimes got irritated when they when they printed a political cartoon of him and even more so when Sybil got bought the original and had it framed <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, there are definitely some funny moments in there, but I think overall, like, the tone is just so much more dour than that. Yeah. The civil unrest continues to escalate, not helped by the fact that the old Nightwatch captain is replaced with the belligerent and pig-headed Captain Rust. Uh, This is also where we meet one of the most fervent members of the revolutionary movement, one Reginald Shue. Since this is before he is the late Reg Shoe, does that make him the on-time Reg Shoe? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> before Rust's military zeal can get everybody killed, Vimes knocks him out and assumes command of the Watch House, aiding the revolutionaries in constructing proper barricades, since the patrician is going to start coming after them with the army. The military begins to quell civil unrest. <sighs> this book has gotten more relevant. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking throughout the entire time uh, reading this that I think this might have been a little harder to enjoy if I was reading it a year ago mm-hmm. because I think it would probably felt a little too close to home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As Vimes and the rest of the Nightwatch continue to protect the people from the government, their area of defense swells to include the headquarters of the Unmentionables. So Vimes and young Sam head inside to release their prisoners and see the gruesome truth of the torture chamber. Mm. So, like you were saying a moment ago, Liz, uh, apparently this section generated no small controversy and was a large part of why this book was considered significantly darker than most of the previous stories, especially the part where Vimes finds torture victims who are beyond medical attention and he, quote, gave what help he could. Mm Mm-hmm. In an interview, Pratchett mentions that depicting the torture as anything less, such as doing a Monty Python homage with a comfy chair, it would have been an, quote, an obscenity. I'm not sure how much I agree with that, but I'd also like to point out that torture and execution, at least as threats, have been part of the Discworld series since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I don't think it's necessarily, like, wholly out of place. It just kind of feels like we're getting a look at a thing that we don't necessarily get a look at in a lot of the other books. I think at least, you know, it helps make why what Vimes and the Watch members are doing is ultimately just because how could you let such a terrible thing happen? You know, especially by the government's own doing, you know, the government that's supposed to be protecting them. Yeah. Eventually, Vimes and Sam get the prisoners out and burn down the Cable Street headquarters, which previous depictions of fire in Ankh-Morpork suggest should have taken down the whole city, but don't worry about that. 
In the process, Vimes is attacked by and ends up killing Captain Swing, who then fruitlessly tries to use his craniometrics on death. <laughs> Pseudoscience uh, falling apart when confronted with the ultimate reality. Yeah. You know, death doesn't really get a lot to do in this story. You'd think that he would comment on Vimes being out of time. Yeah, it definitely feels like there are a lot of situations where death could have made an appearance here. But I feel like maybe that would have made it a little more meta. Yeah. I I think this book gets a little meta in general, considering, you know, <laughs> Vimes has already been through this. He kind of knows what's going to happen. I mean, also, just the history monks, like, just their existence is a big nod to the botched continuity, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they are meta. Swing trying to do the craniometrics i feel like kind of shows you know that he's incapable of change on that he's kind of a bad dude through and through yeah although i would think that because he tries to use them on death i think that mm -hmm. indicates that he actually believes that they work rather than just he's simply making stuff up to justify his prejudices mm-hmm Although he is kind of just making stuff up to justify his prejudices. Yeah, like, let's be real. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't understand that that's what he's doing. He's lying to himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's like his um, ignorance of that fact, you know? It's hard yeah. to change when you don't know how to change. Mm-hmm. Elsewhere in the city, we see Vetinari make his way towards the palace, while Red Shu tries to explain communist theory to the people of Ankh-Morpork, as they argue on a slogan for their movement. They eventually settle on... They eventually settle on truth, justice, freedom, uh, plus reasonably priced love, since Rosie Palm won't stand for people not paying. And Vimes adds, mm -hmm. and a hard-boiled egg, since he doesn't believe that they'll get those ill-defined concepts through the revolution, instead reminding them to seek smaller, more immediate achievements. The people the narrative seems to agree with most are pushing for reform, and... Attempts at revolution is dismissed as unworkable. I think, you know, you could probably make the argument that the story is ultimately making the case that reform will never be enough because you're just replacing the figurehead, you know, but the yeah. institution itself never changes. Yeah. But also then, like, Vidinari will eventually become patrician and kind of sorts things out, so maybe yeah. that weakens that argument? Yeah, I think so. And, like, it also says that revolution won't work out because it always, like, it, it's presented as inherently like something that just collapses on itself. Yeah. So. Uh, well, I I have more about that later. Yeah. <laughs> to the sarcastic chagrin of Doctor Lawn, Vimes uses his memories of this event to make the revolution more effective and less violent. However, Carcer does the same, if opposite, thing to aid and abet, or rather threaten, the military into greater aggression. At one point, the army attacks the rebel barricades with siege weaponry, which Vimes manages to neutralize by gingering some of the oxen who worked as its engine. Uh, worth noting, because this did not occur to me the first time I read the story, is that what Vimes does here is a callback to a moment earlier where he impresses young Nobby Nobs with his knowledge of Ankhmore Park criminal slang, and how when you're selling someone a bad horse, you might use a ginger suppository to make it seem more lively and, and active. Uh, moments like that, of the stuff paying off, 
really help this book feel way more polished than some of the earlier entries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this book is like very much shows how much of a stride that Pratchett was in at this point in the series because like, you know, like we were saying, like the book starts off so energetic that it's like you're immediately in there and that takes a lot of craft to do well. Uh, meanwhile, Madame Mezerol is hosting a ball, and the narration illustrates the way that she manipulates the conversation to influence the politics of some of Ankh-Morpork's wealthiest and most influential people. It's kind of a bummer that we only get a bird's-eye view of her at work. I'd have liked to see the conversations that she twists to make people more ready to just accept a change in leadership. I'd I think it's indicative of how Terry Pratchett is disinterested in the lives of aristocrats beyond how they affect the working class. Yeah, because, you know, she's obviously got a lot of skill and knowledge in order to manipulate people in this way. Um, and it would have been fascinating to see that at work, especially considering the consequences of doing so. So we see Lord Winder's debilitating paranoia and contemptible demeanor as the cake is served and all the guests become mysteriously distracted as an assassin brazenly walks into the room, defying all the guild rules about style, and frightens the patrician into dying from a heart attack. Rereading this scene was weird for me, because I pretty distinctly remember that the assassin, who we later learn is Vetinari, he was dressed in some sort of audacious blue and green striped outfit, and slipping through the party unnoticed because he blended in in certain uh, parts and just the sheer audacity made nobody understand what was happening until it was too late mm -hmm. but like that's not <laughs> what happens here he's wearing black and in my opinion the version i remembered made more sense because it called back to the scene where Downey is mocking the camouflage of an orange and black tiger in a green jungle and veterinary mentions how it's not just about perfectly matching your environment i don't know maybe i'm remembering something from a different book yeah, that's definitely a really interesting idea because we do get like moments where it's kind of made a point that Veterinari is usually wearing gray, I think, um, when he's trying to disappear. Um, and Vimes calls out when people wear black and they're trying to hide in shadows that black is blacker than the rest of the shadow. Mm -hmm. um, and so Veterinari wearing gray kind of mirrors that where it's like, oh, he's gray and so it'll become black, which then blends in with the shadows. And then... In this, like, very, you know, cumulative moment, he's wearing black? And I don't know if that's just to make it seem like, oh, this could have been any assassin. Nobody will really know or whatever. Um, but it does kind of feel like maybe there was potential there yeah. for something like you're saying to be wearing something audacious. I mean, the scene works well enough. And I think yeah, it also uh, is helpful because... The actual tool that he uses to kill Winder is like, is just fear, right? Mm -hmm. And that might not have worked as well if Winder didn't understand that it was an assassin coming after him. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm not going to say like the scene doesn't work or anything. I think maybe it could have worked in different ways. But yeah. I think, especially considering that Vime says that like nobody really knows how Winder died, you know, and it was probably just people pretending like they didn't know and keeping their mouths shut about it. But, you know, him dying of a heart attack would probably be pretty confusing to a lot of people because it was like he was alive and now he's dead. And it seems like probably somebody did it because people have been trying to come after him. But nobody really knows. 
Yeah. You know, there's no marks on him. Mm-hmm. So. The army calls for a truce with the rebels, having heard the news of Lord Winder's death and the swearing-in of Lord Snapcase. When Vimes hears about this, he's conflicted. This is basically the history he remembers, so he's done his job properly, but he knows that Snapcase will be another tyrant pretty much as bad as Lord Winder. I think this is one of those moments where, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think this book captures the complexity of revolution. Um is that sometimes you try to change things and things do change, but it's still bad, you know? Yeah. And how it's a constant effort to get to the good thing that you're actually fighting for. Yeah. Although one could argue that just replacing the patrician is more a, an act of reform rather than revolution. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair thing to say. <laughs> Reg Shu is pretty much the only person actively trying to dismantle the current system and who knows it might have worked if he could get people to understand and like agree with him yeah i and that's a, a thing i remember thinking while reading is that you know in cases like this where there's a lot of political conflict it's really easy i think for the people who want change to get fractured on what they want um and that leads to less people working towards the same goal, which can make it harder to achieve that goal. Meanwhile, back into the palace, Snapcase decides to have John Keel killed. Madame Meserol orders Veterinary to protect him, but the young assassin is nowhere to be found as Vimes and a retinue of rebels, who have grabbed lilacs to wear so that they can tell allies from enemies, they find themselves cornered by Carcer and a number of the remaining Cable Street particulars. Regishu runs out to confront the unmentionables, and they shoot him down. Through sheer force of passion, Reg becomes a zombie and begins fighting with supernatural strength, swiftly joined by the rest of the rebellion. During the fight, there's one moment where Vimes confronts Ned Coates, who has been onto him from the beginning because Ned personally knew the real John Keel. Uh, Vimes explains that he's traveled here through time, and from how violently Vimes fights, Ned assumes that he's from the past. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this moment is so, so, so good, I think, because there's such, like, tragedy in it. Definitely. You know, we, like, w the book is hinted or whatever, you know, um, who is going to die. I don't think they ever give the names at the start of the book. But now we're in that moment where that's happening and Vimes knows there's really nothing he can do to change it. And we know that there's nothing he can really do to change it. And it's just going to happen. And Vimes just needs to let it. Yeah. At this point, the history monks interrupt the battle to send Vimes and Carcer back to the present, replacing Vimes with John Keel's body so that it looks like he died in the fight, more or less like the original timeline. When Vimes regains consciousness in the present, Carcer is gone again. Worried that he has gone after Sybil, Vimes streaks home. Uh, Carcer isn't there, but Sybil is having trouble with the birth, so Vimes runs out and finds the aged Dr. Lawn. With the pox doctor's assistance, Sybil gives birth to a healthy Sam Vimes Jr. Mm -hmm. I did enjoy how Sybil was like, his name's Sam, Sam. No, you mm -hmm. don't get a say. <laughs> yeah, it feels very, like, emblematic of how their relationship works. Like, <laughs> Sybil has made up her mind about a thing, and it's going to happen. And, 
You know, Vimes may not like it, but she's going to do it. We don't get much of Sybil, but what we do get of her is pure gold. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish, like, we had uh, getting to see her a little bit more. Because, you know, obviously, she's kind of going through a moment. Yeah, definitely. So just, like, hearing some of her thoughts, I think, probably would have been nice. Yeah. Also, I did enjoy Vimes saying, I could teach him to walk. I'm good at teaching people how to walk. Mm-hmm. He is the dad to most of the city watch. <laughs> yeah. He's a good father figure on that. So, you know, yeah. now he's an actual father. Yeah. Vimes leaves his wife and son to rest and goes back to the cemetery to reflect on the past. There, he finds Carcer, and they fight for a moment before Vimes' rage tempts him to murder. But he overpowers his inner beast and swears to bring Carcer to justice, tying him up to carriage to the watch headquarters. And before they leave the cemetery, Lord Vetinari steps out of the shadows, notably wearing a sprig of lilac. They talk for a bit, and seeing Vimes as he is now, Vetinari figures out the time shenanigans. He also offers to have a memorial statue built to commemorate those who died in the fight, but Vimes rejects it, saying that they would not have wanted to be heroes, just people who tried to do the right thing. So, with the timeline stable and Carcer prepared for the gallows, Sergeant-at-Arms Samuel Vimes returns home. So that was Nightwatch, what did you think? I don't know if I would probably say that this is my favorite Discworld book, mm -hmm. but it's a very, very, very good book. <laughs> and especially one that I think that anybody who's not read a Discworld book before would enjoy reading this one, even if this is all they ever read of Discworld. Yeah. For how much it kind of harkens back to a lot of continuity, I think it does really work as a self-contained thing. Yeah. And I think like it does so good at building its own emotion and tension and character just within this book that... You know, other books will give you context, but it's wholly not necessary. Yeah. Like, there's some ancillary, like, throwaway references to previous books. Like, Sam mentions mm -hmm. fighting werewolves and how the original uh, Nightwatch house was burned down by a dragon. But, like, mm -hmm. those you can sort of just chalk up to, like, he's a police officer in a fantasy world. Yeah. It's like he's just talking about the world as he experiences it, you know? Yeah. So uh, we mentioned back in the trivia section that this book was going to be called The Nature of the Beast, which is based on this motif of how you mentioned uh, Vimes mm -hmm. controlling his inner beast. I think Nightwatch is definitely a better title for it because it focuses so much on Vimes and it harkens back to the early City Watch stories. And if you ask me, it would feel wrong to have a watch story with that title and this little Angua. <laughs> yeah, I think that's totally fair, and especially because the beast is a little bit more subtext than text. Like, having it be Night Watch, it's like, okay, we know it's about the watch, and presumably early watch, because it's just the watch in the later books. But also, like, night, like darkness, and, you know, there's some thematic th things there that make it work. So, yeah, I think it is a better reflection as a title. And incidentally... The whole reference is about Sam struggling with his internal beast. Implies, at least to me, that Angua is definitely the best choice to be his successor as Commander of the Watch. Yeah, I think you can definitely make that case there, especially because to some capacity, like, Carrot, who would be the, like, story obvious choice, kind of rejects that level of authority. You know, he doesn't necessarily want to be in charge, even though he does lead people yeah he explicitly rejected that authority in a previous book so yeah angua feels like a 
better fit for that, especially because she represents a change in the wash, you know, um, and the growth that the wash has made over the years under Vimes' control. Uh, on a similar note, there aren't a lot of female characters in this story, and some of them feel really similar from a characterization and narrative structure point of view. Like, uh, Rosie Palm gets pretty much sidelined once Madame Meserol is introduced, and both of them do the whole Sherlock Holmes cold reading on Vimes, so that we can have multiple women talk about how impressive he is. I'm exaggerating a little, but that aspect mm -hmm. of the book is frustrating. Mm -hmm. For example, Dr. Lawn could have been a woman and it would have changed basically nothing. Uh, yeah, I think this book is definitely a little weak on, you know, feminine representation. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Lawn, I liked the running gag where he answers the door with progressively scarier medical implements until the end when he just has a turkey baster. <laughs> that's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, a good bit in here. <laughs> yeah. On the subject of characters, there's also a few mostly small cameos of people who showed up in previous Watch novels, uh, notably Quirk, who I don't think we talked about in the episodes for the two books he was in, but he's a real slimeball of a Watchman. Mm -hmm. He's quickly removed from this story, so it feels almost like he was included just as a nod to continuity. Yeah, especially because, you know... Because it is a book where people go into the past, it does kind of make sense to explain, oh, how do these people know each other? And, you know, but at least like Nobby Knobs like serves a purpose for being in the story. You know, he does things while he's in the book. Um, but yeah, Quirk is just there yeah. and then not there and then we move on. Yeah. Uh, also, just to briefly mention something I noticed. Uh, back in Guards Guards, it was said that uh, Fred Colon he was like a very good shot. And in this book, we actually see that he is, at least at this point in history, a pretty, a really good shot. He shoots out two windows like super efficiently. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, it does. Like there are a lot of moments like that where it's like, okay, you know, this thing that's been established about this character has payoff here in the history, you know, and we can like with Colin, we get to see some of the, the reasons why people have said that in later in the timeline. Yeah. Colin is very minor here, considering how he's been, like, such a major part of the watch through the rest of the story. But I don't really mm -hmm. mind, because I don't really care that much about him. Yeah. Especially after how he's acted in some of the later watch books. Mm. I've definitely lost a bit of my tolerance for him. So, I'm fine with him being in this book as much as he is. Yeah. Although, like, he and Nobby are, like, important to have in the watch, because... Mm -hmm. They emphasize that it's not about being cool. Mm -hmm. Like, coolness is not, like, a priority for Terry Pratchett. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not like everybody was, like, a primetime broadcast TV star, super attractive, super, like, slick. You know, sometimes they're just people. Yeah. Just some weirdos. <laughs> also, uh, speaking of continuity, it's probably really weird to read Masquerade directly after this book. Uh, if you'll recall, that story had a secret policeman whose division was also called the Cable Street Particulars. And he said that Vimes had started up that group to solve hidden crimes. And there was an additional reference to them in Feet of Clay. Now, since they're not mentioned as existing in the present in this book, uh, this seems like a case of the history monks putting someone in the wrong point in time and the universe giving them false memories to compensate. 
although the Doyleist explanation is more that something changed in Terry Pratchett's understanding of the character and or his personal politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially because, like, the Discworld books span so much of real-world time. I think it makes sense that sometimes you set up things that end up changing by the time you're going to really talk about them. Just because, you know, the world has changed and you have changed and, you know, it's 15 years since you actually mentioned that thing offhandedly. On that subject, here seems like a good place to talk about the way that Discworld novels tend to discuss things like communism and revolutions. Uh, they tend to be described in somewhat dismissive terms. Not from this book, but I remember one that was about anarchists or uh, whichever focusing on their true enemy, other anarchists, with slightly different philosophies. It tends to be that sort of dismissive attitude, and in this story, Vimes explicitly tells Ned Coates, upon acknowledging him as a revolutionary, that people's uprisings tend to collapse back to the status quo. Sometimes that's true, and it's also very possible for a populist movement to collapse into authoritarianism, but citing historical examples of such failures often ignores the influence of external forces, mm -hmm. uh, without naming names, a global superpower using its resources to destabilize a country with a different economic system, or actively suppressing another nation's movement to overthrow a regime, that type of thing happens in the real world and is often ignored in favor of a narrative that these things just happen. Mm -hmm. I think that although this book does, I think, handle the emotional complexities of revolution well in that, you know, it's emotionally tumultuous and it's really hard to ultimately get a group to like work cohesively towards a thing especially when you can get really fractured mm -hmm. um based on your actual like lines in the sand it doesn't actually talk about the realities of being in a revolution necessarily like becomes because vimes does not ascribe to these revolutionaries and because he's acting as more of a neutral party who's just kind of working with them for the sake of the story. Um, I think we get a lot of, we don't, we don't get to see a lot of how they actually work and, you know, how they succeed and how they fail. And I do think that kind of sucks, <laughs> you know? Not to just disagree with you, but I think we do get a little bit of that. Uh, from, also, for one thing, I think that Vimes is not really just working with them for the sake of the story he wants uh, the people around him to not die and this is the best way to do that yeah i think that's fair um especially because you know vimes has shown time and time again to be somebody who does deeply care about people even if he doesn't necessarily show it so yeah i think i maybe missed that a little bit <laughs> yeah. and also there is a bit where uh, as the revolutionary movement encompasses a large larger and larger part of the city they are distributing food among people yeah, because they and uh, red shoe is trying to solve the the food distribution situation with theory more than practical understanding mm -hmm. i don't know you could make some sort of comparison to folks who like claim to be anarchists or communists but won't help with do the dishes yeah mm -hmm. i don't know how accurate that really is right here but you could. Yeah, but I mean, I think it it does show that, you know, believing in revolution and achieving revolution are different things, and how you achieve that revolution is not always consistent. Really, that this kind of thing is really messy and complicated, and 
you know, I don't think, I think a lot of media in general tends to like kind of simplify revolutions to this very dramatic and inspiring sense. When in reality, it's a lot, you know, messier than that. And it can be really, really hard um, to try to do something like that. So this book in, in particular is where I think there's a major divide in the conversations around policing as depicted in Discworld and how it applies to our world. Uh, my understanding is that it mainly comes down to people who think that these stories are a good example of how the police should act versus people who criticize it as an over-idealization of how they are. Like, not to get centrist about it, but this narrative more seems to me to be about how authoritarianism depends on the unquestioning obedience of its enforcers and facilitates the rise of monstrous people. Yeah, and especially because, like, I don't think I would say that probably Discworld policing is the idyllic form of policing because there are moments where, you know, Vines at least talks explicitly about harming people in ways that he won't get caught in order to achieve his ends mm -hmm. which unfortunately is very very real in at least american policing yeah um so i don't think that's exactly like a good thing to say yeah i did watch a video recently from a youtuber and he his name is dominic noble um where he talks briefly about the discworld series and just he does like a very brief once over on all of it basically yeah he mentions that how the Discworld series depicts policing is very reflective of Britain's attitude of policing in the times that Pratchett was writing these books, um, and that it might not necessarily sit well with an American audience in the current time. And I think that is very, very accurate and fair thing to say. Yeah, definitely. I did see the same video, and you're right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I do also think that, like, Pratchett was not an especially young man at the time he was writing, and so his, mm -hmm. I think, understanding of like the baseline level of certain uh, issues was a, a decade or two behind. Yeah, and that's fair, because despite how, I think, compassionate and good that Pratchett was overall, he's also a human being, and people sometimes have bad takes. You know, I know for some people that will probably be a thing that turns them off of at least the watch books. Um, and I think that's totally fair. But I also think it's important to consider it in the broader context of the Discworld series and who Pratchett was as a person. I wonder how you would compare the City Watch series to like Brooklyn Nine-Nine as mm -hmm. just like comedic media that centers on police. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot to be said there about how comedy kind of shoves some of that darker policing stuff under the rug. Um, and I'm sure, at least in reference to Brooklyn Nine-Nine, a lot of people have probably talked about that. That's a much deeper issue, I think. Yeah, you could probably get a decent length English paper out of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the people who say that these books are copaganda, they're not wrong. Mm -hmm. they're like, it's slightly more nuanced than that. It's not like pure rah rah go police and everything but yeah like, and like sam fines would be the first person to say acab but mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah i think it's like it's not exactly all good and not exactly all bad um i think this book is probably very accurately described as a tragedy and that's kind of what i'm getting away f like taking away from it because there's a moment about midway through the book where vimes is kind of realizing he's done most of what he needs to do in this timeline in order to make things work out 
but he also knows he can't really just like step away from it and deal with Carcer because it would not be true to himself necessarily. Um, and even though it breaks his heart that he might be changing things in a way that has consequences for the for the present him, you know, not the past him, um, he still has to do them, you know. And I think that's really at the heart of tragedy is the lack of choice that a character can have in that, really. Yeah. Uh, one interpretation of, like, a core element of tragedy that I'm fond of mm -hmm. is that in the narrative, every step on the road to ruin is taken for the right reasons and makes sense at the time. I think that's mm -hmm. applicable. Yeah. Yeah, because I don't think we can really ever say at any point that Vimes is making the wrong decision and, you know, trying to help this revolution along or anything but it's also like he is risking you know the rest of his life by doing these things and he also like he still needs to do it he still believes that doing it is the right thing even though there's personal sacrifice potentially involved yeah and um, also it would be kind of incomplete to talk about this book without mentioning the song all the little angels mm -hmm. uh, they rise up with different body parts. Uh, what's your interpretation of what that song is about? Based on the like fragments of it that we get, to me it kind of seems like something that was probably born out of a sense of trying to find the comedy in this very tragic and serious situation that these um, people are in. War is not exactly a good thing and watching people you know and love die is hard to handle. And I think those kinds of things serve as an anchor for the people who experience them in trying to understand what's happened. So I think it like really makes sense as a, a song necessarily. Like it's not exactly the most emotionally complex or anything. I don't know about that. Because my interpretation, because the way that the song works is how do the little angels rise up, rise up, uh, and they rise X body part up. So one interpretation at least is that the angels have been like, dissected more or less yeah and so i don't know that seems to be an emotional inference or implication yeah is being made in the narrative here okay that's fair i think um the instances where i'm remembering it was treated more as like a, a silly thing yeah and i mean i think that's definitely the spirit that the song is kind of intended to have in universe mm-hmm but I think that the, the separation of body parts within the lyrics and how those lyrics are spaced out from each other is meant to evoke segmented angels. Yeah, I think you definitely can make that interpretation of it. The only one I'm remembering at the mo moment is um, they rise knees up. And for some reason, my mind was like, oh, like they're marching. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, like I think it's Sam, like young Sam, but also not baby Sam. Yeah. Um, so this book has three Sams, two of which are the same person. <laughs> yeah, so it gets a little complicated to try to talk about them. <laughs> he mentions how, like, he's trying to figure out what the song is about and why they're singing it and why it sounds like it's a happy song. Um, and Vimes kind of comments that it sounds like it's happy because they're thinking about the people who are really, like, the point of the song. Mm-hmm. Alright, uh, so my usual attempt at finding a thesis for the story, I'd say it's that history is complicated and making the world a worse place is so much easier than improving it 
but we tend to take care of each other. The Ankh-Morpork of the present is a better place than the Ankh-Morpork of the past, because the people who lived there stuck by each other and did whatever they could to keep themselves and those around them safe from those at the top who only care about their own wealth and power. So. Yeah, I think that's a, a very nuanced way to put it, which is uh, will be my reminder um, that, you know, love each other and take care of the people in your life and be involved in your community and yeah and the, the world will get better yeah. if you do those things and eat the rich so that about does it for night watch uh, as always thank you to willow carter for our theme music to you liz for joining me yeah, thanks for having me <laughs> and to you for listening uh, if you'd like to support the show, please share the episode on various social medias so that other people can find it, uh, maybe tell your friends about it, and also feel free to join our Discord server to chat with other folks who love this series. And if you want to support us directly, you can do so on Patreon, patreon.com slash weirdsistpodcast. Uh, if we get to $200 a month, I'll start doing bonus episodes about other Discworld content, including that The Watch TV series that has loomed like the Sword of Damocles over every episode about the City Watch books. Liz, you're not obliged to join me on that. <laughs> it's just like a, a, a shadowy monster hiding in the background <laughs> over our shoulders. Yeah. Uh, you can find links to all this stuff in the episode description. Hi, Manning here. Greetings from the Editing Minds. Just interrupting because we forgot to give a thank you to one random patron. This month, we give a thank you to Carol. Thank you so much. Now back to it. And of course, for each book, we like to share the winner of our poll to find that favorite footnote. Don't bother with the boots would have been Trooper Gabitas's advice, had he been inclined to part with it. You need to bribe someone on the baggage carts to build up stock, and when all's said and done, you'll only have it made a few dollars. Stick to jewelry. It's portable. Trooper Gavitas had seen too many battlefields up close to use the word glory without wincing. That's it for this month. Join us again next time for The We Free Men. Until then, the, the turtle, turtle moves. moves.